kids. Many of us have come to have children of our own. Between our experience of being a kid and raising kids, there's a reality that we have come to know well. Kids like to talk more than they like to listen. As much as parents try to pass along adult wisdom and insight, it's typical for kids to respond with exasperation. They might know better than to talk back, but all the same, they don't want to hear and aren't hearing what their parents have to say. It's all blocked out by the chatter going on in their own heads. Whenever I get frustrated as a dad, I'm humbled to recall that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, this was true for me, and I'm guessing it was true for you, too. Truth be told, adults can be bad listeners, too. Last time we were in Matthew, we were just finishing out chapter 16. In those concluding verses, Peter doesn't want to hear what Jesus is saying about his suffering and dying, and tells him to stop talking like that. Jesus responds by calling him Satan and telling him to get behind him. The disciples don't do a great job hearing what Jesus is saying. What they understand comes up far short of what Jesus has been showing them about himself. He tells, some of them that, he tells them that some of them who are standing there are going to live to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so as we turn to chapter 17, we find that Jesus fulfills this promise, at least partially, giving them a slice of the pie of all that is to come. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 17, and we'll be starting in verse 1 and going through verse 13. Matthew 17, 1. There, the disciple Matthew records, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. We have some interesting detail offered here at the beginning of this chapter. Matthew says that after Jesus had this little interaction with 
Peter talking about his suffering and dying and then saying, get behind me, Satan. That, and then also mentioning that they would see, some of them standing there would see the kingdom of God. Matthew says it was six days later that Jesus decided that he was going to take Peter, James, and John up to the top of a mountain. Now, if you're studying across the Gospels, you'll notice there is a little bit of difference in terms of the difference in time between Jesus talking to his disciples and them coming up to this mountain. Um, you'll see in Mark that he says that it was after six days. But then when you look at Luke 9.28, it says that it was about eight days after Jesus said this. Now, if you're reading that at first glance, maybe you're thinking, is this some kind of contradiction? Do they got their facts mixed up? Well, no, that's not what's going on here. So imagine that Jesus talks to the disciples on a Monday, and then he took up Peter, James, and John the following Monday. Between those two days, there would be six days. If you counted both the Mondays as well, that would be eight days. Now, that's kind of a funny way to count days, but that was not uncommon back in that day for them to count things in that sort of way. And so we don't have any kind of contradiction here. It's just a different way of accounting for the days. And the reason why I want to take the opportunity to just kind of point this out is that we have to be careful about being quick to judge ancient writing styles against our modern writing, writing styles. Obviously, that's probably not the way the New York Times would write up <laughs> when these events happen. They probably put this happened on April 3rd, you know, ex you know 2022, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's just not how they recorded things back then. And that's okay. That's how God intended it. God inspired these human authors to write in the ways of the people of their day. Because the people that they're contemporaneous with was the first audience of Scripture. We're the second audience of Scripture. And so we have to do our due diligence and not just be quick to dismiss what Scripture says because we don't initially understand what's going on. So Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John up to this mountain. Why has he taken them up there? Well, across the three accounts, it says that Matthew... Just, it seemed to be, by, to be by themselves. Mark basically says the same thing, where they were all alone. And then Luke says to pray. So the point is, is Jesus is trying to take some special time with his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to get alone, to pray. And really, what his object is, is to prepare these three to be the leaders that they're going to be among the 12 disciples, and in the early church. Jesus is taking special time to invest in them. And, and actually, this kind of pattern that we see with Jesus, where he spends time with the crowds, and he spends time with the 12 disciples, and he spends special time with Peter, James, and John, has kind of served as a model for us in the way that we go about discipleship here in the church. You know, as you're hearing me preach and we're coming before the Word, that's part of the discipleship process. 
as you got, get involved in small groups, which we've said go up to 12 people, uh, that's part of the discipleship process. And then we have even smaller groups, covenant groups, which are three to five people, which are supposed to kind of reflect the kind of time set aside that Jesus has here with his disciples um, to really get down into the, some of the nitty-gritty of, uh, of what's going to be required of them and in our own lives thinking about what's required of us as disciples of Jesus. So he's taken up to them up to this mountain, and we're not really absolutely certain which mountain it is. Tradition says that it was Mount Tabor, um, which honestly, when I saw this picture, uh, it was kind of exactly how I imagined the mountain <laughs> would look like. I don't know if I've ever seen a more round mountain than that. Um, but later scholars have suggested that this probably wasn't the place that um, Jesus took them because there were some people living kind of around the top of it. Um, and instead, that it would make more sense if Jesus had taken them to uh, Mount Hermon. And this is part of the range that Mount Hermon is, is in, because Matthew talks about how he takes them to a high mountain. So you can obviously see that these mountains are a little bit higher than that kind of more roundish, smaller mountain. And if he takes them up here, they're definitely alone. They're definitely away from civilization. It's a great place to just focus and, and pray and be with Jesus. Um, but his purpose isn't just to pray with them. It's to reveal to them more about who he is and the significance of his ministry. He's brought them up to this mountain to witness his transfiguration. Um, now we think about, you know, what is transfiguration? Well, it was a change in Jesus' appearance. In verse 2, it says that he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white, as white as light. So it's this idea that there's this reality that is hidden beneath the surface that is now being revealed before Peter, James, and John. And we actually see a precedent for this kind of effect uh, when we look to Exodus 34, when Moses is on Mount Sinai. It says that after he he encountered God, he came down the mountain, and his face was shining, and it was so, so bright he had to wear a veil. And at the same time, just as there's precedent, this also anticipates the description that we see of Jesus given in Revelation, after he's already ascended, and John has this vision of him. And Revelation 1, verses 13 through 16, says this about Jesus. Among the lambs stands with someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was, like white, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So Peter, James, and John are seeing the reality of who Jesus is and, and really, in terms of his humanity, who, is he, who, who he is to become, become, which is highly exalted, king over all of the universe. And if that wasn't wild enough, just seeing Jesus transfigured in this way, 
as, as the Peter, James, and John are watching, watching Jesus tra- transform before them, Moses and Elijah appear. Now, you know, we kind of freak out when we see someone who's a celebrity just as we're going out in just some common place. Can you imagine how excited Peter, James, and John were to see Moses and Elijah? The giver of the law, Moses. The, one of the most renowned prophets, Elijah. And the reason why, in part, these two appear is because um, their deaths went a little bit differently. So in the case of Elijah, he didn't actually die. He was taken up in a chariot up to heaven. And in Moses, he didn't get to see the promised land. It was said he was buried, but no one knows where his grave is. God just took him. Um, And so they are appearing here with Jesus on the top of this mountain. Um, And it's exciting. But there's some greater significance going on here merely than just Jesus trying to thrill the disciples. When we go to Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6, we find a prophecy given of the final day which is to come. Malachi 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. So we have a little bit of a background there. And then this is where Moses and Elijah come up. Verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children, the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So, the appearance of Moses and Elijah is supposed to have the effect of communicating several things to the disciples. One, it it signals foremost the coming of the kingdom of God, just as we read here in Malachi. You have the appearance of Moses and Elijah just as they were being referenced there by the prophet. What's more is that these two both are serving as representatives of God's complete revelation. You have Moses as the author of the law, Elijah as kind of serving as the figurehead of all the prophets who are to follow. So you have the law and the prophets, which you've heard um, Jesus and other New Testament writers refer to in in these Gospels, going back to the law and prophets and how Jesus is fulfilling those. The other thing as well is that we think about the lives of Moses and Elijah, and both of them had encounters with God on a mountain. Moses ascended Mount Sinai and met God there. Elijah, after he overcame the prophets of Baal by having fire coming down and lighting up the the offering for God, um, he's hounded. He's being persecuted, and he flees up to a mountain, and there he encounters God as well. And so 
kind of all together, the fact that you have Moses and Elijah here with Jesus, it's, it's intended to reveal to the disciples the greatness of, of who Jesus is by the greatness of his company. You know, Matthew says that as Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus, that they're not just sitting there silently, but they're actually having a conversation with Jesus. They're talking with him. And you might wonder, well, what, what were they talking about? Well, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually records for us what they were talking about. In Luke 9, 31, it's, he says that they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So Jesus has been talking with his disciples about the fact how he's going to have to go and suffer and die in Jerusalem, but he'll be raised from the dead. So this is clearly on Jesus' mind. He's trying to get this across to his disciples. Six days later, they go to this mountain, and he's having the same kind of conversation with Moses and Elijah. So while Peter's been doubting that this is part of God's plan, Moses and Elijah are like, oh yeah, this is part of God's plan, and we're talking about this with Jesus. And uh, it's interesting to imagine to, you know, what else they might have been saying along those lines. Like how, you know, it's, a, it's quite a thing to have to face down death on a cross, and I'm sure they were offering Jesus encouragement. Um, but as, as they're talking with Jesus, and in fact, they start to leave, Peter pipes up. He has something to say. Now, in, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that Peter did not know what to say. They were so frightened. But he goes ahead and says something anyways. Luke says the same thing. It says he did not know what he was saying. But he points out that Peter observed that Moses and Elijah were preparing to leave. It says, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, and basically says what, he, what Matthew records here in verse 4. Peter has a big idea as he's witnessing Jesus here with Moses and Elijah. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, the kind of shelter that, um, that Peter's thinking of, you can probably imagine as looking something like this. Nothing super ornate. This is, kind of, this is from the Feast of Booths. This is, um, this is from uh, a Jewish celebration of, of, of that feast. Um, just made with palm branches, making a little shelter, and... It kind of indicates that Peter's is feeling compelled to do something and trying to hang on to this moment. And you can imagine being like, okay, Jesus, we'll make you shelters. James, you go grab some palm branches over there. We'll go and we'll construct these things. Peter just can't help himself. It's become a theme now that whenever something really crazy is going on, something really significant Peter's the first one to step up. When he sees Jesus walking across the water, he says, Jesus, I will go out and I'll, I'll walk on the water with you. And uh, just as in that case, he didn't really know what he was saying or doing because he steps out and he eventually sinks because he doesn't have enough faith. So here, he doesn't know what he's, he's talking about. He's just filling the air. And as he's jabbering away, this bright cloud descends upon them. It actually envelops them on the mountain. 
And when you go back in the Old Testament, we see this imagery of a cloud representing God's presence. So God's presence is dwelling upon this mountain. And a voice comes from out of the cloud and says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, I, I, I really like kind of that exclamation at the point where it says, listen to him, because it almost seems like God's intervening, because it says, as Peter's saying all this, God comes down in this cloud and speaks to them, and it's like, Peter, can you just keep your mouth shut for a second and just listen to Jesus? It's easy for us to, you know, judge Peter here, but I think we're not so different from him. So often... We ourselves are so preoccupied with our plans, our plans for our lives, our plans even for church ministry. And it can be all kinds of good things. Peter thought, you know, he was doing something great. You know, I'm going to build some shelters, and this will be really glorifying to God. Um, But when we get so caught up in what we think is best, we start speaking foolishly. We start saying things... We don't really know what we're saying. It's better for us to listen, to be quiet. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard God speak and declare over Jesus that he is his, son, he is his beloved son. We'll recall in Matthew 3, verses 16 through 17, it records the baptism of Jesus. And as Jesus comes out of the water, the spear is described as descending like a, a dove. And then a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, this isn't a novel expression. In fact, it's actually... Um, a combination of some expressions that we find in the Old Testament. If we look at Psalms and Isaiah and Deuteronomy, we see how all these are, three are brought together on the Mount of Transfiguration. Psalms 2 and 2, in verse 7, it says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Kiss his son, or he'll be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here, as it relates to this expression, that this, this statement that God is making about Jesus, it's saying that he is the promised son of David, because David is, is the psalmist here. So we have that piece there. Then when we go to Isaiah 42.1, we hear some other similar language that's baked into this statement over Jesus. It says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Or you could say, in whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nation. So here Jesus is being identified with the servant of Isaiah, the suffering servant, uh, given, prophesied in those later chapters of Isaiah. And then, the new addition here, because we've already heard these things expressed at Jesus' baptism, but the new addition here that's introduced on the Mount of Transfiguration comes from Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19. 
This was a, a prophecy given during the time of Moses. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So do you see the connection there between God saying listen to him and what God is expecting the peop- how, the, how the people would respond when this second Moses comes. When God sends this, this second Moses, the people are to listen and to respond. And so what's being revealed here in this declaration over Jesus is that Jesus is the promised one. He is the one who fulfills all of these scriptures. Now, when we look at 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, we see that Peter, later on, understands the full significance of what's happened here. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from the mountain, came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. For while Peter would later understand the significance of everything he had witnessed as he and the two other disciples descended the mountain with Jesus, it remains clear that they're having difficulty understanding, putting all the pieces together. Because now Jesus has returned back to them. He's no longer transfigured. In these verses it says that you know, they were afraid because of everything they experienced, this voice. Jesus came up to them and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Come, let's go down the mountain. But as they're going down the mountain, they're struggling. Picking up in verse 9, it says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So as Jesus has said many times when he's performed miracles, he tells the disciples here, don't tell anyone. Why is he telling them not to tell anyone? It's because they themselves don't fully understand what they've just witnessed. And if they go around saying, we saw Jesus on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, other people are going to misunderstand as well. They're going to think that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're also going to think that he's going to fit in their preconception of what the Messiah is going to come and do. We just see the, we see the degree of 
they're misunderstanding when we look to the Gospel of Mark. Um, Mark indicates that they obeyed and listened. They didn't tell anybody. But um, that they still weren't understanding all this talk about Jesus going, rising from the dead. In Mark 10, it says, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Maybe they're thinking, maybe this is like a metaphor or something. It's like a symbol. They just couldn't fit into their picture of Jesus dying as being, and also him being Messiah. They just, they didn't go together with what they were expecting. But they don't ask about it in this moment. What they do ask about is Elijah. Um, Jesus has indicated that the kingdom of God is coming, but they're like, well, what about Elijah? Isn't Elijah supposed to come first? You'll recall, as, as we read in Malachi 4-5, it says, See, I will send a prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He's supposed to come before. Well, Jesus says, you're right. But he has actually already come. The, the trouble is, is that the people did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. And then Jesus goes on and says, in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So Jesus is saying, he's already come, but he didn't match people's expectations, and so they missed him. And in the same way, I'm going to suffer. And it's because that Jesus doesn't match their preconceptions of what the Messiah is going to be coming to do. Now, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist here. That he's saying that John the Baptist was, was this promised Elijah who was to come. And he's not saying that John the Baptist was a reincarnation of John the Baptist, but instead that he's coming as a type of Elijah. When you, we look at Luke 1.17, when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is, is given this prophecy of what John would go on to do, He's told by the angel, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So not that he's going to actually literally be Elijah, just reincarnated or anything like that, but that he's going in the same spirit and power, and this way he would fulfill the prophecy which was given. Now the great thing that we see in verse 13 is that without him having to tell them explicitly that I'm talking about John the Baptist, the disciples actually began to understand. It says, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. We have some progress here. They're hearing Jesus, and they're starting to understand what he's, he's talking about. They're learning to listen. Kids should learn to listen. And yet, they shouldn't just listen to anybody. If their parents are basically competent, they should listen to what they have to say. But we don't just listen to anybody, at least not in the responsive, obedient way meant here. Whether or not we should listen depends on who is talking. Do they know what they are talking about? Do they have the authority to tell us what to do? 
Jesus answers these questions on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. His knowledge and authority is so great that he can rub shoulders with Moses and Elijah. In fact, he is greater than both of them. God's declaration from the cloud places him on the summit of all authority. Those divine words of confirmation sweep away all of Peter's chatter. He becomes quiet. He listens. Are you listening? Have you quieted yourself to hear what Jesus is saying? He says a lot of things about himself, about the kingdom of God, about how we are to follow after him, about the promise of what is to come. Are you listening? I think your response to that question partially depends on whether you have truly grasped the reality of Jesus and his authority. Some of us just put Jesus in a box. We take him out on Sundays and on special occasions, but the rest of the time we box him back up and we put him on a shelf. We guard our daily lives from him. We keep him away from our dreams. We keep his forgiveness for ourselves, but muzzle him when he says to forgive others. We ignore his call to righteousness, but keep his offer of grace. We are out of touch with the reality. Because Jesus isn't only king yesterday. Jesus isn't only king tomorrow. Jesus is king today. Our ears should listen to his words. They transcend what I have to say, what popular culture says, and even what various venerable traditions might have to say. His word is above all and for all. And this is good news because we are no longer slaves to our own chatter. We are no longer subjects of our own ranting and raving. We are subjects of the King who has spoken clearly, if we would only listen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.